Welcome to the new podcast, History, Politics, and Beer, where we examine contemporary issues through the lens of history. We are solving the world's problems one podcast at a time. Now, from the home office in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we invite you to sit back with an ice cold one and enjoy the pontifications of your hosts, Matt Shockey and Jeff Hudson. Welcome back, boys and girls, to another edition of History, Politics, and Beer. Uh, gather around with your carpet squares and your graham cracker and juice boxes once again and uh, join us for a great discussion on immigration. We hope you enjoyed last week's discussion with Dr. G. Terry Madonna. We got to find out what the G stood for. It is George. I thought it was greatness myself, but we'll go with George because he said it so. Um, we have some other interviews coming up in the future. Uh, we're going to keep those sort of on the QT until we get everything finalized, but we have some very interesting interesting talks coming up with some very interesting people. So today's uh, discussion is going to be really two parts. Uh, the first part, we're going to talk a little bit about the Supreme Court and the surprise announcement from Justice Anthony Kennedy and his surprise retirement from the court. And then we're going to begin a two-part podcast on immigration. And today we're going to talk about the history of immigration throughout the United States. And then um, we come back next week or uh, 10 days, we're going to talk about our current mess and what policy is today. So Dr. Hudson sitting across from me, um, we want to talk a little bit about Anthony Kennedy uh, and why he is so important to the court and why the Supreme Court is so important, especially right now. So let's you uh, give us the framework on what happened this week. Well, okay. And uh, I hope most people know Supreme Court has nine members and uh, there has been in general a conservative trend because we've had uh, the more uh, people on the court have been picked by Republican presidents and Democratic presidents. But Anthony Kennedy, who was picked by Ronald Reagan, has been uh, seen as somewhat of a swing vote. And remember, when you get on the Supreme Court, you're there for life unless you do something horrible that you can be impeached for. And uh, so it is a lifetime appointment. The purpose of that is to uh, insulate the Supreme Court justices from politics to some degree. They are supposed to be, um, you know, philosopher kings in a way and read the Constitution, uh, look at the cases that come to them and decide through their wisdom what should be uh, the outcome of any particular case that comes to the court. Uh, but so they, they, they can get pretty independent uh, uh, because once they're there, they, they're not necessarily beholden to, to the president anymore or a particular political philosophy. So Kennedy was an important swing vote in a case called Obergefell uh, versus Hodges, I believe that's what it was, wasn't it? I think you're right. That's a that's a heck of a to pull that out. Yeah, but uh, this was the case that made it unconstitutional for a state 
uh, to deny gay people uh, the right, as, as it now is constitutionally, the right uh, to get married. And Anthony Kennedy was the swing vote. The decision was 5-4. And so you had a president, uh, uh, a chief uh, justice, no, not a president, a justice nominated by President Reagan, uh, you know, uh, making a universal decision for the United States that now uh, same-sex marriage has to be approved everywhere. And you're denying someone their constitutional rights if you prohibit that. Right, and a right given by the court. Now, you're not talking about freedom of speech, freedom of the press, something like that that's specifically mentioned in the court. If it is uh, this right sort of found by the court, it certainly can eventually be taken away by the court as well. The court does have the ability to overturn itself, and this is one of the fears for some people if you lose Anthony Kennedy and you get a very conservative judge uh, that a case will come before the Supreme Court in cases like Roe versus Wade, gay marriage – you, those rights may evaporate. I think those are the two ones that they're on the front burner. There's right. also questions about uh, interp- how broadly you're going to interpret the Second Amendment, um, how broadly you're going to interpret uh, campaign contributions and, and their protections as freedom of speech. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's an interesting thing. Of course. It would be hard. Usually it takes a while for courts to reverse themselves because the Supreme Court, as I just mentioned, those people are there for life. And the Supreme Court membership doesn't change that quickly. Uh, With Kennedy's vote being a so-called swing vote, if you got maybe a more – predictable conservative in there, a social conservative, uh, conceivably you could have them overturn Obergefell. But, you know, now now you have hundreds of thousands of marriages. Right. So the genie's if, sort of out of the bottle. Yeah. I, and, you know, what would you do? And the Supreme Court would have to issue a ruling on that. Would those people no longer be legally married? I don't think they would do that. They they do worry about the practical effects of their decision. So I don't know if social conservatives who support uh, putting a social conservative on the court if it get uh, would get exactly what they want. Uh, uh, Roe versus Wade is one thing that could come up, as st- uh, there are some states who make. Uh, and have made very restrictive laws uh, about getting abortion. They could be appealed to uh, from someone to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court could conceivably overrule Roe versus Wade. That again, now that's a president that goes back to 1973. So we're talking to something that's been in law of the land for 50 years. So right. that, that would be a hard thing in some ways, but. It's certainly possible. Right. So what we have going now, um, before the last election, uh, Justice Scalia died. Um, Barack Obama nominated Merrick Garland um, to be Supreme Court justice and Senator Mitch McConnell, Republican, basically filibustered that decision and never let it come to a vote in the Senate. Well, he was Senate majority leader, so he could keep it. And that was almost for a year, right? Right. It broke sort of all records. And basically what he was doing is he was hedging his bets, saying if uh, the Republicans win the next election, um, they can put in a Republican choice in the vice presidency. And if the Republicans lose, well, we get Garland anyway. There's no really no law. Well, he rolled the dice and won, and Donald Trump took 
the president, not took, won the presidency. Um, and Garland never got a vote, never even got a hearing. And Neil Gorsuch became um, the Supreme Court justice that took over for Scalia. Now, if you are a Democrat, you call that a stolen seat that it was supposed to be Obama's to fill. It's politics. And Mitch McConnell won the day with that move. Now here we are sitting almost getting close to the midway point of Trump's presidency. And now another seat comes available. Um, and this now is a, uh, um, what some people see as a swing vote, moderate, more moderate judge. And people want the Democrats to do the same thing to the Republicans that the Republicans did to the Democrats. Not going to happen. The Democrats don't have the votes in the Senate to block this. It, it um, might happen if Chuck Schumer was the majority leader. Oh, it definitely would happen if but, Chuck. But Schumer. he's not. He's so not. He can, you know, he can complain, but he can't really do anything. The about only it. way you could ever begin to do this is if somebody like Jeff Flake or somebody like that who hates Trump, uh, who's a Republican, would be willing to break with Republican ranks um, and vote. And to filibuster, not get the 51 votes. But even if you hate Trump, even if you're a Republican that hates Trump and there's some out there that do, um, you still want a conservative on the court. So just because you hate Trump doesn't mean you hate the person Trump's going to appoint. All things as it looks right now, uh, you're going to get a nomination in early July. And by August, that person's going to be confirmed. Uh, right. With And the Democrats cannot do anything to stop it. There's no procedural thing. They have 49 votes in the Senate. There is nothing they can do. Even if they get one person to change, they said 50-50. Now you still have the vice president who's a tie-breaking vote. So you get you need two Republicans to flip-flop, and I do not see that happening. Well, you, so, you do have the pot. There's two uh, pro-choice women Republican senators, and they might be the last two openly pro-choice Republicans on the Senate, and that's Susan Collins from Maine and and Lisa Murkowski from Alaska. And Susan Collins oftentimes talks a little bit better, bigger game than she's usually not willing to buck leadership. But she has just said that she would uh, she would look for any hostility toward Roe uh, very unfavorably. And that could possibly change how she voted. Uh, on the on the nomination now, whether she'll come through with that or not, we don't know. And, and traditionally, what happens is these Supreme Court nominees say hardly anything in the hearings. They will not make. They will not say how they would rule in future cases. They do not even – one of the people uh, – one of the federal judges, not the Supreme Court judge, even refused to talk about Brown versus the Board of Education at one point. Uh, 1954 didn't want to make a comment if it was a good decision or not. I mean that's how extreme this goes. So the hearings will be a little bit of a dog and pony show because you they just the, – the nominees simply won't talk about – They'll have to – the only thing they'll have to ask questions – answer questions about – it's previous decisions. Right. They might, you might be able to get them to talk a little bit about why they decided a certain way. But you're right. They're not going to speculate on any – like if someone brings up Roe versus Wade, they're not going to say, well, you know, what they're going to say is a case might – concerning that might come before me. I don't want to prejudge. I don't want right. to – Right, right. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, now th th it's interesting too. It's I think for social conservatives, the overturning of Roe – is is seen as sort of like a holy grail. They've wanted that, thought it was wrongly decided, and, and wanted that overturned for many years. 
I'm not sure the Republican Party would would like the results of an overturning of Roe versus Wade. Uh, All the polling indicates that the majority of Americans, the vast majority of Americans, don't want it overturned. I think the last poll I saw, 65% of Americans. And then when you get to women of childbearing age, it's 75%. So- you know, if that is the situation where where Roe versus Wade is on the line, and uh, in a congressional election, and then in two more years in a presidential election, uh, I would expect just this massive turnout of of people, especially women, especially younger women, and they're going to be it's, – it's handing a huge block of voters over to the Democrats if that's what happens. Yep. So as you as you heard, uh, we, we do a whole podcast on abortion and we hit a, a lot of this stuff. So if you want to go back and take a listen to that, uh, fill in a lot of those blanks. But I think Jeff makes a good point in that basically this is going to be a political decision and it's going to have political consequences like everything does in Washington. Anyway, so there we go. There's our update on what's happening in Washington, D.C. with Justice Anthony Kennedy. And right after this, we will be back with immigration. Welcome back there. Uh, we're going to talk about immigration, and this is going to be a little bit of a history primer on uh, immigration and sort of how the United States has uh, changed over time. Um, today, you would have to say, Jeff, that we are one of the most liberal countries in the world when it comes to immigration policy, and we're kind of going to pin it there um, and then move backwards. We're not going to give all the details, but from your research, like I just to give you an idea um, – I give you a stat, uh, 14% of all people in the U.S. population are foreign-born. Uh, of all the immigrants in the world, 20% of them are in the United States. Um, we, is, is your brother-in-law an immigrant? My brother-in-law absolutely is an immigrant. Yeah. Um, it, so we sometimes in the heat of political battle, it makes it seem like we turn our backs on the world. Uh, we do not. Um, historically, we do a pretty good job of this. There's racism in it. There's xenophobia in it, um, as there is in all nations. But we do allow lots of immigrants to come into this country. Yes, and 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 that is something. You you know when you again we're going to cover more of the the um, current things uh, in in next week's broadcast. Uh, the separation of families from their children at the border. And, and, you know, that, that's – but most Americans disagree with that policy. And, and our history has been one of waves of immigrants coming and a reluctance uh, or a concern by the people already here that that was going to somehow change their culture right. in a bad way. But it certainly hasn't stopped immigrants from coming to the United States. No, not at all. So if we go back in the way back machine and we head ourselves back, we're not going to go. We're not going to do colonial America. We're not going the whole way back um, to uh, uh, sixteen, the early sixteen hundreds with Jamestown. I think that is a little bit outside the scope of what we want to talk about. Unless you have something you wanted to add from that time period that you think is going to be relevant. 
Uh, well, no, I was just, uh, I think everybody knows we speak English for a reason. Right. Right. And uh, those people, they came to a new continent, and in that sense, they were immigrants, and in one sense, they weren't. They were coming legally from one part of England to another part of England and English colonies. But uh, no, I think everybody knows that uh, those are the groups of people uh, that eventually. Uh, you know, created the colonies, banned the colonies in the states, and fought the revolution. And the revolution, in some sense, a very it was a civil war. We were fighting England, and was I think I've uh, the estimates, the best estimates, are a third of the people in the colonies didn't even want to break from England. They and and many uh, colonists, when we got our independence, left and went back, including uh, Benjamin Franklin's son. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's a given and we'll go from there. Right. So and we're and we're we, we certainly recognize the plight of Native Americans in the immigration policy. Um, and we're not ignoring that in this, but it, it's going to make the pod too big for all. So we had to lay some things aside and we're going to start basically in the early part of our republic. And that's sort of, I think, the place we need to start. And for all intents and purposes, Jeff, for the first 100 years, years, we don't have an immigration policy. We have open borders. Uh, You can come and go as you please. Uh, No one's at the gate checking to see who comes in. The only thing that we're really controlling for the first 100 years of our nation is naturalization. Who can become a U.S. citizen? Um, We have the Naturalization Act of 1790 which puts uh, the residency requirement at two years. Of course, you have to be a free white person. The Naturalization Act of 1795, which puts uh, the puts it at five years residency for citizenship. And then politically, we get the Naturalization Act of 1798, which John Adams, this is part of the Alien Sedition Acts. And now the residency requirement goes up to 14 years. And this is the first real politicized immigration battle. Um, The Democratic Republicans were being controlled, were the party of Jefferson. Uh, Jefferson was the party of immigrants, the party of the South and the West. And the Federalists were the party of the hooty snooty white people in the Northeast. And the Federalists wanted to basically stymie um, this flow of potential voters and citizens into the Democratic-Republican front. So they passed a Naturalization Act of 1798 with 14-year residency requirement, which is basically going to stall the growth of the Democratic-Republicans. Uh, the law is never really even enforced. It's repealed very shortly uh, because then in 1802, we get another naturalization law that it um, that repeals this. So what we see early on is that uh, we have open borders. And even when we do talk about naturalization, which was the key part of this, it becomes politicized almost immediately uh, because we wanted to block one group of people because they were going to be a voting block for a particular party. And by the way, we'll be coming back to that idea. That oh, certain yes. groups of people uh, vote for certain political parties, and that drives immigration policy rather than their contributions or their potential contributions to American society. All right. So I'm going, I have a question for you. Um, our first immigration law, um, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. My question for you, Jeff, is who did we exclude in 1892? 
That would be the Chinese people. Very good. Very good. It's one of those accurately named acts. <laughs> this is our first immigration law, uh, and it's to keep Chinese people out. Right. And, you know, uh, there the irony here, for those of you who don't know uh, the, the history of the United States, is that uh, our first uh, – communication and uh, that wasn't on the rivers and the, the uh, sh- transportation network that, that didn't include canals and rivers was the railway. And there was a big move to make a transcontinental rail- railway. And of course, that was completed shortly after the Civil War. I think Promontory Point, Utah or something yep. was where they finally met. And was it the Union Pacific? Was that the one coming from the West? But they used Chinese workers on Moss, and uh, they are responsible for one of. Uh, without them, it would be hard for us to conceive one of these first uh, great link linking up of the different parts of the nation. And uh, so, and you might have heard the expression, not a. Chinaman's chance. Have you ever heard that expression? I have heard that expression. And do you know where that came from? I'm going to guess it came from the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. <laughs> well, it came from working <laughs> on the railway, uh, at least apocryphally. Uh, and uh, they would go in and they would, uh, you know, they would be involved in the dynamiting of tunnels and so forth. And, of course, the, the person went in and placed the dynamite <laughs> and lit the fuse was Chinese, (laughs) and uh, so uh, sometimes they didn't get out of the tunnel and so forth, and so you have not a Chinaman's chance. If you take a look at some immigrants, as they were coming over, were given little uh, dictionaries of little sayings that you should learn in America to get along. And and if you look at some of the other uh, nationalities, it was – really basic stuff, you know, like I need a shovel, you know, where's the ba- that sort of stuff. Like if you look at the Chinese version of it, it would had things like please stop hitting me. That man stole something from me. <laughs> so, you know, even if you're on the boat coming over and you say, you're going to need this little pocket guide here, guys, uh, to help yourself. Please stop hitting me. Please stop beating me. It's uh, just an essential phrase for your Chinese Right. Person. So it was – this was um, bipartisan. Um, and I think this goes back, Jeff, what you said earlier. Uh, when we see early immigrants, they look like they're white. Uh, even though they may not speak all the same languages, they're Protestant. Well, yeah, let me throw something in about the, the Germans who right. were here shortly after the English people. And if you look at guidebooks for this part of Pennsylvania in the uh, colonial and the early federal period, there's some that say, you know, you maybe should avoid Lancaster County in a place. There's too many uh, people that are from uh, German, Pennsylvania, what we call Pennsylvania Dutch, but it's a German background. And it's just a little too weird and maybe you just could avoid that part. So there was still prejudice, but, uh, you know, again, the Chinese, are, they're easily identifiable. You, you know, it's uh, obviously, you mentioned beforehand that immigration laws are always intertwined somehow or, or too often intertwined somehow with racism. And certainly the Chinese Exclusion Act uh, is an intertwined with that racism. And also to go back to the Transcontinental Railroad thing, to know how, how valuable they were. This was not just a group of people that 
this this is how valuable they were. I mean, there was obviously racism, but the railroads actually brought in special diets for the Chinese workers. They were given their own special diet um, that people were allowed to uh, that, and that was expensive for them. It would just been easy to have everyone eat the same brown meat that everyone else was eating. So they're getting rice and exactly. Stuff there. Okay. So they're, they were important enough to the system that the owners were willing to make that concession to bring in food for them. So just to go back a little bit to talk about how important the Chinese were. So all right, Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, there was one hundred twenty-three thousand. Chinese immigrated in the 1870s, uh, joining the other 100,000 that were already here. So that puts you about a quarter million, the yellow peril. Um, Anyway, it was modified in 1884. It was renewed in 1892. It was renewed again in 1902 and finally repealed in the middle of uh, World War II in 1943. So finally, the Chinese Exclusion Act um, is gotten rid of by 1943. One of the things they were concerned about is the concentration of Chinese in the Western cities in places they called Chinatowns. So the places you now visit in cities. <laughs> yes. To, yeah, it's all good to, to Chinatown. Get, yeah, yeah. To, to get good food and, you know, maybe to have some kind of unique shops. Uh, that's what they were concerned about. And, uh, of course, they were, uh, you know, uh, worried about potential opium dens and all this other stuff that uh, turns out not to be why most people were going to Chinatown. Let me read you a quote from Jefferson, not Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, 1907, which is really sort of in the heart of this time period. And I want your take on this, Jeff. You support this. This is Teddy Roosevelt, 1907, talking about immigration. In the first place, we should insist that if the immigrant who comes here is in good faith – let me start that again. That was poorly worded. In the first place, we should insist that if the immigrant who comes here in good faith becomes of American and assimilates himself to us – He shall be treated on the exact equality with everyone else, for it is an outrage to discriminate against any such man because of creed or birthplace or origin. But this is predicated upon the person's becoming in every facet an American and nothing but an American. There can be no divided allegiances here. Any man who says he is an American but something else also isn't an American at all. We have room but for one flag, the American flag. We have room but for one language here, and that's the English language. We have room here but for one sole loyalty, and that's the loyalty of the American people. Well, right. And, you know, and this gets into the question of, of course, uh, Teddy Roosevelt was a nationalist. And, and this gets into the question of what is a nation? But you're avoiding my question. I asked you what you thought of it and do you support it? And now, now you just <laughs> that is you just gave me the middle finger and went along your damn merry way and didn't well, answer. I didn't even address I'm it trying to me. provide background. Okay, so he's a nationalist, um, and and this does get into uh, what's a nation. So here's the part I will agree with with Teddy Roosevelt that you can come from anywhere, and if you come here. And now I think he's talking about not just immigrating. It sounds like he's talking about wanting to be naturalized as a citizen. Right. And then, you know, you should be uh, treated like everybody else. There's there's no um, – he, he, he talked uh, – Teddy Roosevelt talked a lot about hyphenated Americans and, and how sometimes they were treated differently. And they shouldn't be. So you can be an American as long as you come here – 
and assent to certain things. Um, so he's not talking about founding a nation on a racial basis, but he is talking about founding a nation in part on a cultural basis when he talks about, well, you should speak English. And, um, and, and, and again, this goes, so I don't know if I totally agree with that, but I'll tell you what, in principle, I do agree. This country was founded on certain things. Uh, I'm not. He doesn't mention those explicitly. It's founded on the Declaration. We have, unlike almost any nation that I know about, we had a original plan of government drawn up at the beginning of the nation. It's very hard for me to imagine someone coming here and saying, "Well, yeah, I don't really like the Constitution, but I want to be an American." Well, no, no, you don't. Right. We were founded on certain things, and I think that's the gist of what he's saying. I, I know people have problems that he mentions the English language, but we do come out of a certain uh, culture. And actually, I was just thinking about this. So uh, for for those of you who are hearing any kind of xenophobia coming out of me, I'd like for you to think about it this way. Uh, I'm a dog lover. Had dogs all my. Oh, this is going to go great. You're just immigrants, <laughs> and now we're going to dogs. I'm so going. I'm okay. going dogs, and yeah, we'll get back to the. <laughs> okay. Right, so, Good lord. Yeah. Here we go. All right. Well, in in America, we have you know obviously humane laws, and I think I just saw one where in Pennsylvania you can't have a uh, a dog. Uh, uh, Outside for 39 minutes, it's above 90 degrees yeah. or below 32 degrees. A Libra law, I think it's called. Okay. Yep. So, and you know, this shouldn't come by surprise. I grew up in the United States. We're a dog lover. I've been every part of this country and I've had dogs. And I can't tell you the number of people come up at my dog say, what a great dog you have. And I've certainly done that in almost every state in, in the union. Well, you know, in China and in, in uh, Korea, uh, they don't look at dogs that way. You know, dogs are lunch. Are, yeah, you can eat that, and you can see pictures of that if you want to on the internet. Wouldn't recommend it if you're a dog lover. So this sounds like you know that's a big cultural difference, and and it's I I'm, I don't think anybody who's Chinese or you know comes from a culture is going to come to America and continue that. Obviously, they most of them are going to want to follow the laws. But my point is, is that there are cultural differences, really, even on something like diet. And that seems strange, as you mentioned. Oh, no, food's very important. Yeah, but, but you know, if if your neighbor right now, wherever you're at and you're listening to this broadcast, and, you know, this is barbecue, it's 4th of July, <laughs> and, you know. <laughs> and they're barbecue and fluffy. <laughs> and you notice that their dog's not barking anymore and you see something – you're going to you're going to have it's going to be an emotional, visceral reaction. It is yes, and you know that's something. It, so to the point, we do have different cultures, and although we're going to talk about xenophobia and and racism, we absolutely come from different cultures where different things are uh, um, appropriate. And even moral and decent, uh, so I, I think that the the idea behind what Teddy Roosevelt, I'm going to agree with the majority of it. Like people are balking at the English, thing. right? But you know, I, t I, t I teach government, and I taught government for many years, 
You can't understand our government unless you do understand the government of England and where it came from. So I don't know. You don't need to, to know the language to know that. That could be translated. But I do think that that cultural heritage is extremely important. I agree. I, you know, I, it is certainly very nationalistic in tone. Uh, it's certainly a, 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 an arrogance there with Teddy Roosevelt. But the, the sentiment of it, the heart of it, you have to agree with, that if you come here, you need to assimilate into our culture. I, I think that's been lost recently, and I think this is some of the um, – disagreeableness, and I'm kind of moving ahead in the future a little bit to talk about why I think people today are not anti-immigrant, but ant- hesitant to embrace immigrants because we've we've talked about multiculturalism so much that we need to accept everything. One giant group hug and we're all going to sing Kumbaya. Um, and that's that scares people. You talked about the food aspect and that's certainly one part of it. But when you start talking about how women are treated, how you treat your child, the religion, the religious practices, what time you go to church, um, all of those things, you know, you, I, I, moved into my development because I like my development. If they put up a Walmart right next to me, I don't like that. They changed my development. They changed what I chose to be here. And if people are moving in and changing the very foundation of your country in a way, I understand the intrepidation of people who look at that and say, no, I don't want multiculturalism. I want you to learn English. I want you to like hamburgers. I want you to watch professional wrestling or or whatever you know <laughs> all the great parts of america exactly culture. i want you to love apple pie and go to chick-fil-a with well you know whatever america is to you um so i do i do understand that well there, um, and, and there and you mentioned some things and some things are uh you know uh, superficial and some are less superficial. And one of the things you mentioned is the way women are treated. I just uh, saw a post on my Facebook and I, it was going around, you know, it's one of those viral things. And it mentioned that borders are arbitrary and nobody has the right to draw them and say who's going to be a human being and who's no one's not illegal on stolen land. And well, yeah. And I, and it, I would invite everyone. In the United States, especially if you are, you know, liberal slash progressive, look at the way women are treated in the world. I'm telling you, you want borders. You want, um, in general, you want American laws to govern within your borders and you want them to be enforced. And so you do want people to adapt to our culture when they come from the Middle East. Right. You you do. I don't I don't care what you say. You do if you believe women should have equal rights. If if people come from Asia, most parts of Asia, you want them, if you live in the United States and you believe in equal rights for women, you want them to adopt American attitudes. And sometimes it's hard to say that. We're like you said, we're multicultural, you know, and, and everything. But I, I tell you what. Whether you're liberal, conservative, or moderate, there's certain things that you believe about human rights that you want protected in this country. And I don't – I 
think and they're not protected around the world, and, and, and they're and, not protected in most parts. Of no, the world. It's, it's not like we have ten thousand, um, ten million Norwegians wanting to come to America, right? I mean, people coming from established democracies where freedom is protected, those numbers are fairly low of people right. coming to the United States. It's people who are coming well right now extends a, a lot from Central and South America, where some of these countries are falling apart, and democracy and human rights are not even democracy. And, and a lot of them are coming here for what we got, right? And that's great. And to me, that's the part that'll irritate me about someone who would keep someone out because they speak Spanish or because they're brown and look different than I do. But they want to. But they're coming here for what we have. They want the economic opportunity. They want freedom for their young children to go to school and get an education. And I don't understand why we don't uh, welcome them with open arms. I don't understand. The, when, we'll get into this right. next right. time, but that, anyway. that's enough for my speech. Okay, so let's. We talked about the Chinese Exclusion Act, and that gets us up into the 1870s. Uh, when we get into the 1890s, um, immigration really starts to explode. Um, from 1860 to 1890, the urban population of this, I mean, I'm sorry, from 1860 to 1910, the urban population grows from 6 million to 44 million. Um, the cities are bursting at the seams, and these are Italians, Poles, Jews, a lot of people coming from Western Euro- Eastern Europe, I'm sorry, and uh, Southern Europe. Uh, they look different than what is already here, and the numbers are overwhelming. Uh, by the time we get into the early 19th the early part of the 20th century, there is a very there is a fear that the worst of the world is coming to us, and they are changing um, what we believe, how we live, um, and s- s- fueling a lot of this is a concept of social Darwinism. I think we need to spend a second or two talking about what is social Darwinism. We get that term from a sociologist named. Herbert Spencer, um, he looked at cities and tried to compare cities to Darwin's theory of evolution. And social Darwinism basically was saying that there are some uh, people who are more advanced, some people who are less advanced, and uh, you sort of need to protect yourself. And this is how it it was interpreted. You had two different ideas. You had positive um and negative. The positive side was that you would try to simply outbreed the people who were coming here. This is one of the reasons why Roosevelt had so many children, Teddy Roosevelt, that is. And then there was the negative eugenics, the negative side of this. And this was trying to limit the number of people that were coming here that were going to dilute, if you will, um, the strong genetics of the United States. And That idea, we get into then quota systems, Um, especially 1921, we get the Emergency Quota Act, uh, which takes immigration from certain countries that was standing at 800,000 and the next year drops it to 300,000. So drops it by over 50%. We start looking at people from Southern Europe, Eastern Europe as being less than. They're not wanted. This is a negative. They're poisoning the gene pool. Um, This is racism at its worst, uh, fueling immigration right. policy. And and this was, in part, very religious-based as well. The, Absolutely. Catholics, we don't want them. We don't the, want the, Jews. The Poles and the Italians that are coming in are Catholic. The people from Russia and uh, uh, eastern part of Poland were Jewish, so they weren't 
they weren't white and they weren't Anglo-Saxon and they sure as heck weren't Protestant. And so they were they were seen as, uh, like you said, as, as undesirables. And we, we have a big, huge um, resurgence of nativism where – if you're from, if you're native at that point was considered white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, and if you weren't those things, you were less than. And we have the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. A lot of people misunderstand the Ku Klux Klan, and, and although it has its origins right after the Civil War, and basically trying to terrify blacks back into accepting Jim Crow and not voting and so forth. But the the it gets a big boost at this point. And the big boost isn't that somehow blacks have just reasserted themselves. It's also uh, based on American identity and nativism and being opposed to these uh, people who are not white Anglo-Saxon and sure as heck aren't Protestant. You might have noticed that the Ku Klux Klan burns crosses. Some people say, well, you know, what are they doing that for? That seems irreligious. But that <laughs> is to, uh, as a beacon out into the night. So they are militantly uh, Protestant, and uh, this is when they get the big boost. And so in the 1920s, they have their big parade down in Washington, right? right? Right. And this is a mainstream movement. This idea, and I used the word earlier, I should really define. That's the idea of eugenics. Um, we tend to think of eugenics at its end with uh, Adolf Hitler and the extermination of 11 million people, 6 million Jews, and the purification of Germanic blood. Um, but genetic, but eugenics was a widely studied, widely practiced idea. Um, in the United States, just to give you an example, uh, there were tens of thousands of people in the United States, American citizens, who were sterilized against their will because the state said that they were morons, they were idiots. Um, these were medical terms at the time. Uh, they should not be reproducing. They were uh, a burden to the state. As a matter of fact, when Nazi Germany started to begin, it began its eugenics program, it contacted the state of California because the state of California was actually had the most extensive eugenics programs in the world at the time. And if you want to get started in eugenics, where do you go? You go to where it's being practiced. So this idea that some races were genetically superior, some people were genetically superior, was not a fringe thing. This was mainstream. Every, every country was studying this and believing in it. I mean, they took kids off the streets. Um, uh, matter of fact, in California right now, well, some states, North Carolina is one of them. They finally apologized and have given people uh, restitution for uh, forced abortions, forced sterilizations. Uh, California, I think, has yet to do so. Um, they were giving people no, that wasn't seconds. just aimed at immigrants. That was, no. it, but it's a related idea. Absolutely, the that idea there are some that there are the idea that there are some people that are superior and some people that are inferior. So they weren't. We weren't. You know, uh, uh, telling Polish people coming to the United States, no, you no, can't no. have children. But, but the idea that some people are better than others, right. and certainly that policy is going to carry over into the 1920s. It's going to fuel the Klan. It's going to fuel hatred of immigrants. And these things become confused. And I think this is kind of where we are today, Jeff. I think that there is a I, – I think any nation has a right to control its borders and to have 
a immigration policy and to have a population that upholds the beliefs of that country. I think you, you, I don't want you know I I want to exactly I want anybody who wants to become an American citizen learn about the history of the country. You know, one interesting thing is. Uh, I, I used to have kids take the the naturalization test, and, and I said, you know, I, actually I put sample questions because the naturalization test was too long. And I said, you know, we're going to take this. If you score a certain, I forget what percentage, it was the same percentage as what you get when you pass it in, uh, in actuality, uh, I'm going to put you on one side of the room, and you get to stay here. And those of you who can't pass this, you have to go to the other side of the room, and we're going we're gonna to deport you. Well, the, the few times I did, I always had more deportees. <laughs> and, and so with my way of thinking, it's, and those were native-born citizens, so my way of thinking, you should know, I think all Americans, whether you're born here or not, should know what you have to pass for the naturalization test. And if somebody can pass that, Good. I want you here. If you want, you want to study that hard. You want to come to this country. In many cases, learn another language. I, we, we've, and we'll talk more about this next time. We've always benefited greatly yes. from immigration, economically and culturally. Uh, but I do think it's being lost a little bit. People are like, well, you know, we can just welcome everybody, and if you're a decent person somewhere, and you can just come here, and we'll have to treat you decently, and you know. What's decent in one place is not what's decent in another. And I guarantee, again, we, I mentioned all, you know, the, the way animals are treated, uh, the way women are treated, which in many places in the world is someone that is not entitled to equal rights. Um, and, you know, and I understand we have sexism in the United States, but there's sexism and then uh, people – uh, young women wanting to be educated and then being shot in the head for it, right. uh, which is what's which happens, which happens and happened in Afghanistan to our recent one of our recent Nobel Peace Prize winners. So, you know, I think this is going to be a good place to cut us here, Jeff, um, because I think when we come back next week, we certainly want to look at what's happening in the United States, but we also want to compare ourselves to what's happening in other countries. How do other countries? Sometimes we look at ourselves. In by in individually, and I think that's a mistake. We need to look at what other countries are doing as well, and I think because they give us examples, but also helps give us perspective. So next week we're going to talk about what other countries are doing, what we're doing now, and we're also going to try to answer the big question: What do we even want out of an immigration policy? I don't even think we can agree on that. So Jeff, until next time, uh, anything in closing? I know that you always have something. I'm gonna put you on the spot here. Uh, some words of wisdom, some nugget of truth, some chestnut of inspiration, some wine of <laughs> fountain of blah. No, uh, you know, I, I don't have anything in, in, in particular other than to say that immigration is this old problem in the United States. And again, we've always done this dance between accepting immigrants from other countries and being un almost unimaginably enriched by their contributions. Uh, but at the same time, <clears throat> we have tried to preserve a cultural identity. And I think where we really need is, is for people who don't think we do have 
a cultural identity. I'd like for them to, between now and the next time, if they want to listen to us in a week, rethink that. Rethink what what is valuable about American culture that you want to preserve, because that's a good place to start this discussion. All right. Thank you, Jeff. And everybody, we'll see you next time.